Well, back in 2004, there was a movie that came out. And most of us, if you were born in the 70s, the 80s, or the 90s, you've probably seen this movie. And uh, so if you were born like post-90, so 2000 babies, you, you probably have never even heard of this movie, but it's Passion of the Christ. Everyone remembers this movie from Jim Caviezel. Did I say that right, Caviezel? Yeah, Jim Caviezel. And this movie was tremendous for so many reasons. Mel Gibson directed the movie, and he produced the movie, and what was so memorable about the movie was just how excruciating it was to watch. And for those of us who have viewed this movie know exactly what I'm talking about. And for those teenagers in here like, oh, I've never heard that, I want to watch that. <laughs> Viewer discretion is advised, to be certain. It is a bloodbath. However, the message of this movie cannot be missed. I remember when I was 15 and then this first came out and I went to go see it, I remember thinking to myself, that's what happened? That's what happened? That is horrifying. It's horrifying to see the physical suffering that this man Jesus went through. I remember being totally taken back about, about it. Of course, this is just one of many movies that Hollywood has produced depicting the life and the death of Jesus um, as a matter of fact, there's been countless books. For example, this is a seminary library, right? Countless, thousands and thousands of many more books than movies have been written about this man named Jesus. As a matter of fact, paintings, and this is the famous painting. What I think is interesting about this painting is that Jesus was a dark-skinned, short-haired, bearded Jewish man, most likely. So this is like the opposite of what Jesus probably looked like. He probably was not like a Polish Olympian. Uh, that's kind of what I'm getting from this vibe, even though this is like the most common of Jesus' paintings. But we know we have dozens and thousands and so many paintings depicting this man named Jesus. There's also statues all over the planet. This is the famous one of Brazil. We, we all know, we all have seen these, these concrete, molded, or, or from other rock or gold or silver, statues depicting images depicting this man named Jesus. Throughout the epochs, there's been countless church buildings assembled and, and so that the church would, would gather and worship this man named Jesus. And as I was thinking about all of the coverage that this man Jesus has gotten over the last 2,000 years, it's like, this guy really stands out. I mean, are we going to move on to someone else anytime soon? I mean, surely we've covered this guy enough. For 2,000 years, he's gotten a lot of good coverage. Will it go away? I don't think so. I don't think the coverage that Christ has received will go away. And it's because Jesus was really, really unique. He was really, really unique. And I, I don't know what your previous perception of Jesus has been. I don't know if you grew up in the church kind of like I did. I mean, I was wiping my boogers in the pews when I was like four years old. And I loved church because I could play with my micro machines on the pews. I'm like, free time. I don't know if you're kind of like me that just grew up in the church or if you're brand spanking new to this whole thing and you were like, you know what, I saw the, the, the you know, the the road sign in someone's yard, and I was like, I'll go to that. 
got invited by a coworker, I'll go to that. Free cookies and tea? Come on, let's go. I'll bring my whole fam. Regardless of where you are at in your understanding or your perception of Jesus, I am simply asking you to have an open mind tonight and an open heart. And I'm going to ask you to ask yourself this question. What is your perception of Jesus? What is your perception of Jesus? What is your view of Jesus and how has it been shaped? Because he is awfully unique. And I think what, I think what I'm struck by is we have this thing called the Bible. And, and the Bible depicts this man named Jesus better than any movie, any painting, any book apart from the Bible, any statue, anything else. We have the word of God that depicts this man named Jesus. And Jesus is unique because Jesus says things and does things and endures things that no other person on the planet has said, done, or endured. So my aim tonight is to answer three simple questions. Wrapped up into one question. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? And what did Jesus endure? Why is he so unique? Why has he gotten so much coverage? Why does he stand out the way he does? So I'm going to be in John chapter 19, and you are free to open your Bible or turn on your device and find John chapter 19, verse 1. And as you do, I'll say a brief prayer. Jesus, I do pray that your Holy Spirit would empower these next moments as we look to your word to shape our perception of you. And God, I pray for anyone in here right now whose curiosity has peaked who wants to know more, who's open to you, Christ. I give you this moment. I ask for your power. In your name, Christ, amen. This is John chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe, which, by the way, was mocking him because purple was the color of royalty. Verse 3, and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said, Here's the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. We have a second neutral witness saying that Jesus claimed to be the son of God. So the first thing that I can answer in that question is that Jesus said he was the son of God. That's what he said. He he said to someone at some point, the scriptures show us several times, he said he claimed to be the son of God. I'm going to ask you, is that reality congruent with your current perception of Jesus? I think what's easy, especially in a world full of technology and instant information, at any given moment, you can find anything you want online about Jesus. I heard a thing on the radio recently that this new generation, might include the millennial generation, and Gen Z are getting their um, perception of Jesus first from YouTube before Scripture. And I was struck by that fact. 
that now we're up against uh, anybody can say anything about Jesus. And if it's online, it's, it's true. If it comes from technology, it must be certain. But Jesus said that he was the son of God. This is starting in verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, and Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement. Verse 14, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So we have the Jews right now saying, listen, we've got no king. And you're just the governor, Pilate. You've got to answer to Caesar, the president. So yeah, Pilate was under some pressure. Pilate was absolutely under the federal pressure, if you will, to fulfill their law. You better do what you know, you're commanded to do. If you don't, there's going to be issues. So Pilate gives them up. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't fight back. He doesn't throw any kind of accusation at them back. He willingly embraces it. And what does he do? Jesus did carry his own cross. That would be like if you or I were having to drag our casket to our gravesite. Can you imagine the emotional turmoil you would be in if you know you've got 30, 40 minutes left, an hour and a half, whatever it might be, and you're responsible for dragging your casket to the gravesite? I mean, we are talking about what no human emotionally can handle. Jesus carried his own cross. And I think, that, I think that some of us in here tonight figuratively feel like you do that every day. I think that there are many in here who figuratively think that they drag their own casket to their grave every day. That the suffering that is currently in your family or in your job or in your marriage, it's just like, yeah, look, I am dragging my casket to my graveside every day. Hmm. This is starting in verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the uh, Jews protested to Pilate and said, Do not write, quote-unquote, king of the Jews. This man only claimed to be the king of the Jews. He only claimed to be the king of the Jews. They didn't want king of the Jews on a notice on the cross. You see, there has been a long-standing cultural acceptance of Jesus, just as long as he remains 
in the category with all the other good moral teachers. Right? I mean, Confucius, Aristotle, Gandhi, Socrates, Jesus, aren't all of these characters exactly the same? They all have kind of a fundamental teaching based on something that we would maybe call today like the golden rule, right? They're all just good moral teachers, right? The difference is that one of these guys, Jesus, claimed something that these other guys didn't claim. So what do we do with that? I'm certain there are people in here tonight that are like, yeah, I'm fine with Jesus being a good moral teacher. He's just not God. Here's, here's, what I, here's what I'm trying to suggest. If Jesus is only a good moral teacher, and Jesus claimed to be God, but it turned out that he wasn't God, then he was a liar. But if Jesus thought he was God, and it turned out that he was mistaken, then he'd be a lunatic. Either scenario disqualifies him from being a good moral teacher. Good moral teachers are not liars, and good moral teachers are not lunatics. So actually, either Jesus is a bad moral teacher, or he's God, or he's Lord. And we are faced with that. I don't know. I mean, gosh, if, if I was faced with confessing whether I was a liar, a lunatic, or God, I'd be like, dude, I'm not God. I'm a liar, lunatic. I don't want to die. But that didn't happen with Jesus. He willingly embraced it. And it's not, this is, this is what's so crazy. It's not that Jesus suffered. That didn't set him apart from everyone else on the planet Earth. It's why he suffered. It's why he suffered. Lots of us have suffered. As a matter of fact, lots of people before Jesus have been crucified. It was a Roman practice of execution. It's why he suffered. So why did he do it? What compelled this man to suffer the way that he did? This great prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, one of the greatest, is prophesying to Israel, telling them about the coming king, this Messiah figure. This is what Isaiah says, starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. And when he held him in low esteem, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by men, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. John the Baptist in John 1.29 recapitulates this thought by saying, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist brings it up all those years later in the New Testament. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And will the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Jesus endured immense suffering. Endured immense suffering. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus' life being taken from him was an offering for our sin. Why? So that we would be justified. So that the God that we were once alienated from in sin, we are reunited in love. That is why. That is why. If you don't hear anything else tonight, hear this. Jesus embraced suffering to end suffering. It was our suffering. Our suffering. So I want to speak to you here in these last moments. I want to speak to the soul who is asking if God cares. The cross of Christ is his answer. I want to speak to the one who's asking, does God love me? The cross of Christ is his answer. Or to the one who's suffering daily from a physical ailment, an emotional ailment, the cross of Christ is his answer. The cross was God's message to humanity to say, yeah, my suffering was embraced to end your suffering. This is a hard pill to swallow. Because every other way in life we earn. We earn the trust, we earn the money, we earn the reputation. But here we just accept. I want to give you about 60 seconds here. The lights are going to dim. I'm going to give you 60 seconds to shut your eyes and meditate on this profound, astonishing reality. That Jesus' suffering was embraced willingly to end ours. So take this a minute and imagine that and meditate on that and soak in that. Yes, Jesus, we offer you this minute of silence and ask that you would do the powerful work of reminding us why you embrace suffering. You've probably heard the story before. Maybe even read the scriptures for yourself. You've been Christians for decades. You've gone to the Good Friday services. You've seen it before, but have you really experienced it? Have you thought about what it would have been like? Why did he suffer? He didn't have to do it that way. Why did he choose to do it that way? When I think of the crucifixion of Jesus and what he experienced, I think the night that he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, he's taken, he's beaten and berated, he's spit on, he's whipped with the cat of nine tails 39 times. Bones would rip out chunks of flesh out of your body. It was 39 because 40 was thought to kill you, and then they took the crown of thorns just to mock him. They placed it on his head. The blood began to drip down his face. It's gruesome to even think about. We don't want our children to watch it, but it's the story that God chose. Because as Luke said, his suffering would end our suffering. We would no longer be separated from him. After he was humiliated, the Romans knew what they were doing. They would make him carry his own coffin, as Luke just described, a mile up a hill to Golgotha, the place called the Skull, where you go to die. This piece of lumber may or may not represent what that cross may have been like, but we know it would have been heavy. At least as heavy as this, if not more. And scholars debate whether it was just the crossbar or it was the beam on the back. 
but he would carry it a mile. I don't know what he was thinking and what he had in his mind. He hadn't slept all night long. He stayed up all night talking to his heavenly father. Man, as a Christian for 20 years now, I think about what Jesus did for me, and I, I, I begin to just lose the excitement and the passion because it just come, becomes a story. But as he gets it closer and closer, going uphill a mile, not just 20 feet, he needed some help, and Simon of Cyrene spotted him, and they, they took the cross, and they lifted it up, and they placed it in between two, two robbers, two criminals, where he would be crucified and die. And he would hang there for hours. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with crucifixion or even that whole experience of walking up the hill or not. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm out of breath already. What was that, like 35 feet, 40 maybe? Let's just say 50 if we're counting. I know Jesus was a few years younger than I am, but he didn't go to Planet Fitness, right? He didn't have a Monon Center Pass. He'd never done any CrossFit. He was just 33 years old, most likely, made to carry this giant mass, at least 150 pounds, if not more, a mile up a hill to that place to be nailed to it. Where, by the way, you don't bleed to death, you suffocate to death. And I'll get to that in just a moment. You see, I've often thought about, like, why he chose the story that he chose. And what I love about God is... He knew for generations upon generations earlier, at just the moment in time, that he would come and give this ultimate sacrifice. It would atone, meaning cover up for your mistakes and my mistakes. Now, we know in Scripture it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No person in here is perfect. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. We say we're a hospital for sinners, so you can come to find healing. But if you realize that that storyline isn't just present in the New Testament, it's present all the way through the Bible. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament times, anybody, I mean anybody, could draw near to God. The way you did it was you would give a sacrifice, and you would sacrifice an animal or maybe grain, and depending on how wealthy you were, determine the type of sacrifice you gave. And this animal would get what you and I deserved. So the priest would take the sacrifice, and he would give it as a sacrifice on the altar, and it would take away your mistakes. So like when you had a few too many When you made some mistakes with somebody that you were dating, when you got angry at your wife or your husband or you berated your kids publicly or whatever you did, you lied, you cheated, whatever it was, it was like, okay, honey, I messed up. I want to get right with God. I'm going to go do this. We're going to do it all over again. Now, do you and I ever stop making mistakes? I know I don't. I I improve. I've seen God improve my life. I don't struggle with some of the things I used to struggle with. Praise God. But nobody's perfect. And so, was the priest's work ever done? No. Every day, day after day, atoning, covering up for our mistakes, these animals were offered. And see the good news of Jesus that we can remember on Good Friday, that he came about when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. That wasn't just a metaphorical language. It was a symbol for them to truly understand what Jesus came to do. That anybody could draw near to God, except this time, instead of offering one sacrifice to cover up for your mistakes for that day or that week, he would give an ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10, it says this in verse 11, 
that day after day, every priest stands and performs the religious duties. Was there a, a chair anywhere in the temple? No, because the priest's work was never done. It says he was standing all the, t- the time. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which could never fully take away our sins. Verse 12, it says, but when this priest, talking about Jesus, this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He, what? What does it say there? He sat down at the right hand of God. There's no chair anywhere in that temple because we never stop making mistakes as human beings. But when Jesus was perfectly human and perfectly God incarnate, when he gave this once and for all sacrifice, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. In a moment, I'm going to get to John 19, but I wanted you to experience that for just a second because what Jesus does and what it says in Scripture, you can take that verse down, is this, that he is explaining to us that you and I, I know you messed up and you've made mistakes and you felt uncomfortable coming to a building like this. You feel uncomfortable when you see people praying. You don't really know what you believe. I'm telling you, I was one of those people for many, one of those persons, only one person, for many, many years. And when I really, truly encountered the work that Jesus did on the cross, it forever changed me, particularly when I read the book of Hebrews. Because he sat down. When was Jesus crucified? You see, in John chapter 19, it makes it very clear to us, he was crucified on Friday. It was the last and greatest day of the festival of unleavened bread, the, the Passover festival that they were celebrating. On the last and greatest day, do you know what they would have done? They would have sacrificed the Passover lamb. Every year, you all get together and they say, hey, we've given our own sacrifices individually. We're going to come together as a community and we're going to confess all of our wrongdoing onto this animal. And the high priest would come out, lay his hands on the animal, do that, and then the animal would get what we deserved. And the sins of the Israelites would be taken away for one year. But when this high priest got up on the altar, he changed everything. And what I want to share with you is this. You see those words. When he stands up and it says that at noon, it got dark around the land. And from noon till three o'clock, he hung there on that cross. And no longer, no longer was he be able to move his own arms anymore. And if you don't know much about crucifixion, you don't die from Bleeding to death, you die from asphyxiation. You suffocate to death on the cross. It was meant to torture you in front of your friends and your family. And I don't know about you, but if I hadn't eaten in a long time, I hadn't had anything to drink, I had not slept throughout the night, my own friends kept falling asleep on me, and then people spit on me, and they whipped me, and they mocked me, and put a crown of thorns on my head, and made me carry this up to the top only to nail it to me. The last thing I'm thinking about when I'm nailed to that cross in my last breath is care and concern for the people around me. Would you agree? And look, man, I know you've heard the story, some of you, but have you really allowed that to sink in? Like he could have just cursed, he could have said all of the things that he did. And in each of the gospels, he says in Matthew, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pointing us all the way back to a particular psalm that describes him as the Messiah. And in John chapter 19, verse 30, it says with his last breath, to tell us die. Literally, it's paid in full. It 
is finished once and for all. Was the high priest's work ever done? No. Every year, the same sacrifice again and again and again. But this priest got up onto the altar and said, we're done with this once and for all. Behold the Lamb of God. It is finished. It's an accounting term. It's paid in full. All your debt, all your wrongdoing, the things you're embarrassed about that only you know when they did in the darkness. He says, I know it and I paid for it. And all you have to do to receive payment is actually accept it into your life. And so often when I picture Jesus just hanging there on the cross, getting his last breath, because eventually they would break the legs of the people who were on there. And when they could no longer hold up their weight, they would sag down. They would take shallower and shallower breaths, and they would eventually die from suffocation. I don't know if, I hope you have never experienced something or seen something like that. I have actually seen my own child, man, pass away. Take their last breath. And some of you have had loved ones that you've experienced stuff like that. And so what we're talking about here tonight is not just some story. It's it's about life. It's about eternity. It's about our brokenness. It's about our shame. It's about our guilt. And he says you can rest in him. Be sweetly broken in him. That you no longer have to suffer because he suffered for you. And he chose to do it that way. And he chose to give his life at a particular moment in time. And as I close, do you know what time he gave up his life and said, it is finished on the cross? Look at the scripture. It says three o'clock in the afternoon, literally twilight. And the reason he waited until that particular moment in time is why I love God. It's why I love scripture. So that you and I could sit here today and know for thousands of years, they had celebrated the Passover festival. And the last and greatest day of the festival, the high priest would come out and he would offer that Passover lamb. Do you know what time he would do it? Three o'clock in the afternoon at twilight. And he would come out, the high priest would, and he would say, this animal is getting what we deserve. And he would say, to Telestai, it's paid in full, the sins of the Israelites for one year. And this high priest, man, he got up on the altar and he knew 2,000 years later, you and I would be sitting here. He says, I know what you have done. And rather than sitting in shame and guilt and embarrassment, all you have to do is receive my free grace and forgiveness because I paid for it. You don't have to live like that anyway. You don't have to do it anymore. You can share. You can know where eternal life is. You can know what salvation is. You can know what life with me is like. You don't have to be alone anymore. I desire to be present with you. Will you pray with me? God, right now, for those of us who are here, we picture Jesus one day when I get to see him when all is said and done, and I think of how you have saved each and every single person who will receive your grace and forgiveness, God, and that there are some of us in the room right now that if we are really honest, that we're not really sure where we will spend eternity, and rather than feeling embarrassed or or guilting people into stuff, we just honestly say thank you. Thank you that we don't have to question what you were doing or why you did it. You suffered so that we could know so that we could know that we, anybody could draw near to you if we receive your grace and your sacrifice and your forgiveness. But it takes us receiving it. And so maybe there are some people here right now who have been Christians a really long time. And they have become complacent. They haven't made space for you in their life. We have things that we have done that we're embarrassed of. And God, we just need to surrender and no longer bear the weight of that. If that's you, confess this with me. God, I need you. I beg for your forgiveness. 
I surrender all of that stuff to you. I lay it at the foot of your cross, Jesus. You gave a sacrifice so that you could atone, cover up for my mistakes. And so I give that over to you. And then some of us, God, we're not really sure if we're honest right now where we will spend eternity, what this life is really about. But we would like to get to know you. And you told us that anybody could draw near to you. If we receive your grace and your forgiveness, that we could begin a relationship with you. We could get to know you and live for more than just our nine to five and some fun weekends and hopefully having some retirement egg before we all pass and it's all over. That eternal life is real. The life with you is real. That there is purpose and meaning this side of heaven. And so maybe there is even one person here tonight that's going to surrender their life to you. They're going to awaken the reality of you and they're going to go change the world for you. And so I invite you, if that's you in the room right now, man, God may have been stirring in your life long before you walked in this room. Do not be ashamed of his good news. He is not ashamed of you. Just receive it tonight. Confess this and pray this with me. God, I know that I need you. I thank you that you paid the price for me, that it can truly be finished. I can rest in you. And so I receive your grace and your forgiveness. And I surrender my life to you fully, Lord Jesus. Use me for decades to come. We love you and we give you this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen.